This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good Wednesday afternoon and welcome to today's edition of On Target. Linda Swain is off this week and I'm lucky enough to be sitting in the big chair filling in for her. Today we're going to be talking a lot about the situation in this province as it pertains to inflation, the rising cost of everything, how difficult it can be for people who are more vulnerable or even just living paycheck to paycheck. My guest today is Provincial Coordinator of the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, Dan Meads. Good afternoon, Dan. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, in your position, you certainly see a lot of what goes on when it comes to, you know, people struggling to make it through. And you're an advocate, a longtime advocate. I mean, first of all, what are the broad strokes here in Newfoundland and Labrador? Yeah, there's a few things that come to mind when we talk about where we are as a province and where we are as a community. The first one is I'm lucky enough to come in and chat with you relatively often about these issues. And sometimes I feel a little bit like Chicken Little in here saying, hey, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And I find myself wondering if that's the best way to get these messages across. Um, right now, it's worth people hearing this message today, and that's the sky is falling. I mean, no kidding, we're really there. The thing that we've been worried about for many, many years around the cost of living going up and government subsidies and supports not responding quickly enough, we're there, partly because of COVID, right? We all know what happened in March of 2020. And then the government of Canada came in with a SERB benefit, which was really able to, to help people get through that early COVID period. That CERB has obviously gone away and in a lot of cases has been clawed back from people through the tax structure. And so we're seeing a lot of people who are right on the margins of poverty that are actually a little worse off than they were before COVID happened to them. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing to keep in mind is that poverty rates have gone up all across Canada, but specifically here in Newfoundland and Labrador over the last couple of years. We saw a little spike, a little blip that we thought was happening before COVID. And then, of course, that CERB payment meant that those poverty rates were going down functionally because people had those payments coming in every month. And now we're back to that real concern around poverty rates going up. The cost of living going up and inflation, which we're all seeing every day in every single thing we buy. Some of that's natural inflation that happened as a result of some economic forces that we've all been told about. And some of that is price gouging. Let's really call it what it is, right? Some of that is is big businesses taking the opportunity to raise prices more than they need to. Um, And governments not doing a good job of regulating those big businesses when it comes to prices of staple goods. We've seen a long history of that in Canada, um, and we're seeing it again today on, on all sorts of things. And so people who were a little bit poor, so just below the poverty line in Newfoundland and Labrador, have fallen further below the poverty line. People who are just above the poverty line have fallen below the poverty line. And those of us who are lucky enough to not be in that situation, we all know this viscerally because we're feeling it too, right? When you fill your tank of gas, at, when you fill your car at the pump, you understand that it's costing you more than it ever did before. Um, Um, And just think about what that means for people who were just above the poverty line before all these prices started to go up. And I mean, when this situation starts to slip and it gets worse and worse for collectively everyone, I mean, how does that come out in the cards when it comes to society and how we function? Yes, a few things. So number one, we're seeing inconveniences in our life. So if you're not living in poverty, or even if you are, but if you're not living in poverty for this example, you're seeing an increase in petty theft and petty crime in your neighborhood. Now, it's really easy to get grumpy about that and say, gosh, I can't believe there are so many criminals around. These aren't criminals. These are our neighbors who are desperate for the change in your your center console 
household and that's why they broke into your car to get it because they have no other way to buy food. And so blaming them is certainly one option. The truth of the matter is it's not their fault. They're doing whatever they can do to get by. And so when your bicycle gets stolen out of your backyard, it's because someone needed that bicycle to try to get somewhere. Uh, and having some compassion around those things is really, really important. The, we're seeing it in a bunch of other ways, though, and we're going to continue to see it over the long term. Let's talk about what it means to have a higher rate of people living in poverty in our communities. It means a bunch of things socially, right? We talked about the crime rate, but the big thing that it means is actually an economic argument here. So what we see is we see our healthcare system costs a lot more money. We see our education system costs a lot more money, and we see our justice system costs a lot more money when we have people living in deep poverty in our communities. The more people we have living below the poverty line, the more those three systems of government cost us. It's worth noting, those are our very most expensive systems of government, right? The healthcare system is going to be 50% of the budget across Canada within the next year, and it's failing as we do it. And so when we see those outcomes happening, those economic outcomes for all of us, our tax dollars have to be spent on those health outcomes, education outcomes, and justice outcomes. We're not able to address the actual problems that are what, what are causing us to spend more money in those systems. And so it becomes self-perpetuating. We end up criminalizing people living in poverty, right? And so someone steals that loose change out of your car. Let's say the RNC managed to catch them for it. And now they've got a criminal record and a bunch of negative outcomes. Some of those are economic as well because they didn't have enough to eat. And so they broke into your car, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is a self-perpetuating problem. The more people we have living in poverty, the more we spend on the result of that poverty, the less we have to address the root causes of poverty. And that's really what we're seeing right now. And I wish I could tell you that we were at the end of this cycle and that, you know, in the way that we like to feel about COVID, whether it's rational or truthful or not, that we're about to come out the other side of it. That's not the case in the social outcomes when it comes to poverty right now in our communities. We're just at the beginning of the negative social outcomes of this. And it is worth noting that as we talk about these negative social outcomes, they are heavily, heavily, heavily weighted toward women. Way more than half of people living in poverty in this province are women. We see it in a wage gap. We see it in all sorts of things. And those outcomes, right, health, education, and justice, those still happen overweighted more than 50% are women experiencing those negative outcomes. But then we also see it in interpersonal outcomes for women, specifically around domestic violence. And so keeping that in mind, right? And so these are there are big economic costs to this these issues, but there are also really finite personal costs, especially to women in Newfoundland and Labrador. And Dan, when I hear you talking about, you know, it, it can just be perpetuated in ways, it, then it can become generational and, and it goes on and on. Right. Intergenerational poverty is a huge factor. And so what we see is 30% or more of people who grow up living in poverty continue to live in poverty as adults and raise children who then live in poverty. So I want to make sure I really help you understand what I mean by that. That 30% number is a three-generation number. That's 30% of those people have no chance of breaking the cycle of poverty because their grandparents were poor. Now, we didn't make, they, they didn't choose anything. They didn't make, do anything wrong to cause their grandparents to have been poor. But those education, health, and justice outcomes still impact those people just as hard. And in fact, because of the cyclical piece, even harder. And so we have this idea in Canada of this bootstraps argument. You know, I lived in Alberta for years and years and years. And, and we got this argument all the time there. You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It always enraged me. It enrages me now. I'm fortunate that we don't hear that argument so much in Newfoundland and Labrador. We do have a far more community-based response to people living in poverty, in part because of the, the cyclical type of economy that we've had here for generations and generations. But it is still a fact 
that there is no way for 30% or more of people living in poverty to just change their lives because they choose to or because they work harder. It isn't about that. And so that, the, the, that intergenerational piece is one that even if we address some of the root cause pieces, we've got 30 years, right? That's a generation before we get to the next generation. So we still need to fix it. And so we can't just make decisions today and expect it to have long-term positive impacts on poverty reduction. It's got to be a sustained generational approach to this complex problem. And hearing you say, um, you know, people are, are in Alberta or anywhere saying, pull up your bootstraps. So, I mean, I, if, that's not, if that's not the solution, and I'm not saying it is, what are some of the ways that, you know, you can start to address it? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight, but the choices get made overnight. And that's part of the problem here is that we, our politicians make decisions based on political and election cycles. So we're talking about four years, right? And so if you're not going to see the outcome over four years, politicians don't feel motivated to make those choices. You're not going to see all of the things you need to see in a four-year election cycle. But what we do know is that one of the main ways we can impact people in the short term and then change those outcomes long term is income. We can change the structure of the way people receive money. Now, that's through work and wages. It's also through income support. We can change the way that people feel about and have actual income to buy their basic needs. And when we, when we structurally change that income model, then we have an opportunity to change poverty for those people, but also for their kids and for their grandkids. And with that, you know, in the next segment, we should talk a little bit, I guess, about some of the solutions that could possibly be put forward to this. And, and you know, who is responsible for those solutions? Because I guess it would be federal, provincial, and municipal. There's three orders of government. They all have a role to play, municipal, provincial, and federal. And they can all work together when they choose to. My guest today on On Target is Dan Meads. He's Provincial Coordinator with the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation around inflation, rising costs, vulnerable populations, and poverty. Stay with me on your VOCM. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to On Target. I'm not Linda Swain. Jerry Lynn Mackey filling in for Linda as she's off this week. My guest today is Dan Meads. Uh, he's a longtime poverty advocate throughout the province, but he's also the provincial coordinator at the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Great. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you in studio as well. I find the conversation just flows so naturally. Yeah, for sure. When you're right here in person. So it's, yeah, it's just wonderful. But we've been talking a lot about poverty in this province and really right across the country and how to address that especially in these times you know post covid i'm going to i'm going to go out on a limb and yeah. say covid is behind us now whether it actually is or not yeah sure that remains to be seen but i mean let's talk a little bit about wages in yep. the province and and minimum wage and i guess you know some of the issues around that as it as it pertains to addressing poverty yeah sure so when we talk about poverty what we're actually talking about is people not having enough money to meet their basic needs that's the definition of poverty right so either every year you've got enough money to meet your basic needs or and if you do well you're not poor great at work if you don't have enough money to meet those basic needs then you're living in poverty so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about poverty you can set that poverty line a bunch of different ways 
and I have been doing this work so long, I'm so tired of arguing about it, I don't care what number we pick anymore. Let's pick a number, whatever it is, and we'll call that the poverty line. Anybody below it is living in poverty, anybody above it isn't living in poverty. Now, we've talked in the last segment about some of those outcomes that come along with living in poverty, right? Around justice system, health system, education system. There's also a bunch of interpersonal or personal ones, right? The one that I like to tell people about is out of a study out of Hamilton, Ontario, about 10 years ago. You can check check it out. It's called the Code Red Report. It basically tells us that a person living in poverty in Hamilton dies decades earlier than a person not living in poverty in Hamilton. So we're talking about 32 years, right? That's the life expectancy difference in, in Hamilton, Ontario. Again, this is from about 10 or 11 years ago. So those are real outcomes for individuals. So let's assume as a community, we think poverty is bad. Cool. Great. Let's assume as a community, including our politicians, we want to do something about it. Great. What do we do about it? Well, the first thing we need to do is take care of that definitional piece of what it means to be poor. We need to make sure everybody in our community has enough money to meet their basic needs. Now, for people who are working full time, well, let's pay them enough to make that happen. Pretty basic stuff, right? And so when we've got a minimum wage like we do here in Newfoundland and Labrador of $13.20 an hour, that's so far below the poverty line that people are, are about $10,000 in the difference. So you're $10,000 below the poverty line if you're working full time for minimum wage. Now. Let's keep in mind that the government of Newfoundland and Labrador has decided that they're going to increase the minimum wage. One of the sort of metrics for minimum wage, one of the standard bearers here, is a $15 an hour minimum wage. You can argue about whether that's enough. I argue that it frankly isn't a living wage. But let's say $15 an hour is the standard. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador has agreed $15 an hour is the standard. So they've announced it. We're going to have a $15 an hour minimum wage. And then they gave people two and a half years to get there. Right. And so the first increase which hasn't happened yet is about to it's 50 cents an hour so we're still leaving people so far behind in this minimum wage conversation that they're nowhere near meeting that poverty line so what does it mean for those folks they're still working full-time you know they're they're way below the poverty line so what do they do well some of them are lucky enough to get a second job right if that's a thing that we, we can agree is lucky to have to work two jobs some of them aren't able to do that for a whole bunch of reasons skill set scheduling If you've got kids at home, working a second job is just about impossible. But if you're not able to get that second job to try to top up that 10 grand a year, you're left trying to find some government supports to do that. Now, government supports in this conversation come in a bunch of different forms. In one case, government supports are food banks, right? Because a lot of our food banks are actually funded by the government in Newfoundland and Labrador anyway. Sometimes that money gets a roundabout funding, but eventually it's government Newfoundland and Labrador money. Sometimes it's subsidized housing through the Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation or through some municipal or, or community nonprofit housing. All of that money fundamentally comes from government, whether it's municipal government in some cases or provincial government, or in some cases through the Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation, it's federal money. But it's still your taxpayer dollars going to make up that $10,000 a year difference. So we've got options, right? We could, in fact, make sure that people were paid a living wage when they went to work. What would that mean? Well, it means a whole bunch of things. Those negative outcomes we talked about, including people dying much younger, we can get rid of those things, not overnight, right? Some of those health damages especially have been done. It's really a callous way to describe that problem, but it is truthful. Um, But we can change it for the next generation if we change that wage structure now. So minimum wage going up to a living wage would make a huge difference. That's the first thing we can do. Now, governments are sometimes really reticent to make employers do that work for them. I have gone around and around intellectually on this topic for 
decades now about whether it's an employer's obligation to make sure somebody doesn't live in poverty. I believe it is an employer's obligation. I am an employer. I own a small business. We pay our staff a living wage. It's a choice that we make in part from a value set point of view, but in part because it makes good business sense to have employees that are excited to come to work and aren't going to steal from us and don't need to work other jobs that cause them to be late, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't agree with, sorry, let me, before I move on from that, we've seen countless examples in Canada and around the world of where paying people a living wage doesn't cost the employer dollar for dollar what they think it will. Let's talk about what a living wage is in Newfoundland and Labrador right now. The best study, the most recent study, came out from the Center for Policy Alternatives in 2019, and it was $18.85 an hour. That's a big gap from that $13.20 that we're currently at. Now, that $18.85 number, we can argue about it. It should be $18.50. It should be $17. It should be $15. Sure, let's have the racket if you want to, I suppose. But at the end of the day, we can all agree that $13.20 doesn't get us there, and some number above that will get us there. That was in 2019. Can we all agree that 2022 is a more expensive world to live in than the world that we lived in in 2019? A few things have changed since then, right? Like we've learned the word pandemic for one, but the cost of everything has gone up in the last six months, let alone the last three years. And so that 1885 number, it's outdated for sure. Maybe it was inaccurate then, maybe it's inaccurate now. Whatever, let's figure out what we want the poverty line to be using something called the Newfoundland and Labrador Market Basket Measure. It's a thing that Stats Newfoundland and Labrador puts together each year and can actually predict, can tell rather, what it, what the cost of living is community by community in Newfoundland and Labrador. We can aggregate that by population, come up with a number, see what it is. Spoilers, it's like 27 grand a year. It's not that much money. So we can make sure that people are making enough if we choose to. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we saw big employers all over the country give what they called hero pay early in the pandemic. Do you remember that? We, we took low-wage workers, specifically in the grocery sector, and we decided to call them heroes because they had to go to work when the rest of us had to stay home, right? And we decided to pay them a couple bucks an hour more. What happened to those companies when they were paying a couple dollars an hour or more? Did they go under? Did they have terrible quarters of profits? Wait, no, they didn't. They had record profits. They could afford to do it, no problem. So we know that certainly those big businesses can afford to pay their staff a living wage. Now, we could argue that small local businesses can't afford to do it. Maybe there's an argument there. Maybe there's a role for our provincial government to step in and top up those wages. Again, it's important to remember, the government's topping up those wages anyway. They're just doing it by funding food banks and nonprofit housing. We could do it directly through the wage system if we chose to. That's the first area where we can think about wages. The second area that we think about wages or income for people is on income support. What when I was a kid we used to call welfare, right? We call it income support now. The income support rates here in Newfoundland and Labrador are so far below the poverty line that you're better off making that poverty wage than you are on income support. Now, we've talked about the $10,000 a year gap between a living wage and the minimum wage. There's an even bigger gap if you're on income support. I'm, I'm hesitant to give you a number because it's based on family size, right? And so I want to be really clear that it's worse than if you're on minimum wage, but uh, it depends on whether you're a single person or whether you've got kids or whether you're a family of four. All of those things really go into impact what your income support rates are. The only thing people need to know when they hear income support rates is that the number is not enough, not even close. It's insulting it's so low. 
and it isn't indexed to inflation. It used to be, but our current government in Newfoundland Labrador made the choice not to index it to inflation any longer. And so what does that mean? It means as everything goes up, as the price of gas goes up, as the price of food goes up, as the price of literally everything goes up, that income support money doesn't go up. Now, I know it's really easy to think about things that do and like, oh gosh, well, what goes up when the cost of living goes up? Let me give you an example. Your MP's pension goes up. So the people you used to elect and partly make these decisions, historically your MHA's pensions would go up based on inflation. That's not necessarily the case anymore for every MHA in Newfoundland and Labrador, but for MPs it still is. And so the people who are making these decisions after they retire, their fixed income goes up with inflation, but people living in poverty, their income doesn't go up. Now, it is still important to remember, we're paying the difference anyway. Taxpayers are paying the difference anyway. Whether So if we have income support rates that are so far below the poverty line, then we have no choice but to fund things like shelters, like food banks, et cetera, et cetera. So people who are listening to this are taxpayers in Newfoundland and Labrador. You're paying the difference already. The difference is whether you want your neighbors to die 30 years before they need to, whether you want them to live with dignity, or whether you're okay with the status quo. If you're not okay with the status quo, the status quo, again, you're still paying for all the things. You're just getting rotten outcomes from Right, it's going to come out. It's going to come out in the cards no matter how you slice it. Exactly. And so we've got choices to make. Our politicians have those choices to make on our behalf. And right now, in my opinion, we are habitually, consistently making the wrong choices around income for people in the province. And we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. When we return, let's uh, let's delve further into some policies that don't work and some that do here on On Target. My name's Jerry Lynn Mackey. We'll be right back on your VOCM. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Good Wednesday afternoon. Welcome back to today's edition of On Target. My name's Jerry Lynn Mackey. I'm guest hosting this time around for Linda Swain, who's off this week. My guest is Dan Meads, longtime poverty advocate. Dan, you're also the provincial coordinator or one of the provincial coordinators with the Transition House Association of the province. Yep. And thank you so much for joining me in studio. So we left off while we were talking about uh, wages and income support, yeah. and that kind of led us to policies. I mean, what do you think? Like, can policy really make a difference? when it comes to the number of people who are living below the poverty line? Yes, the only thing that can. And so when we think about responses to poverty in our communities, there are two forms of response. There's like a community and individual response, right? And so that's the empathy and the thoughtfulness that we should have for our neighbors, whether they're poor or not. That's the first sort of line of defense, right? And when I was a kid, I'm old now, I'm in my 40s. And so when I was a kid, that was the line of defense that we saw all the time, right? And so like my parents would take in folks for Sunday meals that were in our neighborhood in the West End that weren't able to take care of themselves. And that was a common occurrence, and it was the way my mom and dad decided to impact the world around them in a positive way. That helped that individual on that day. It did nothing to change the state of poverty for that individual or for the province. The only thing that can impact poverty rates and and the lives of individuals living in poverty is social policy, and that's made at three levels of government, municipal, provincial, and federal. They all play a role. They can work together if they choose to. They often don't play a role, and they often don't work together. And interestingly, most of the time, the policy choices that, that drive me nuts the most 
have nothing to do with poverty, but disproportionately impact people living in poverty in a negative way. And these politicians that are making these choices, it's not that they, they curl their evil mustaches and think, oh, how can we impact, how can we make little changes that are going to hurt people living in poverty? They just don't think of the big spectrum of things, or they're making a balance of concerns. And at the end of the day, they make choices that benefit all, the largest portion of the population and and disproportionately negatively impact people living in poverty. Let me give you an example on the municipal level to start with. This is one of my least favorites. We used to be able to put a quarter in a parking meter downtown. You can't do that anymore. You've got to use your cell phone and your credit card to do that. So what if you don't have any minutes left on your cell phone or you're behind on your cell phone bill this month? What if you don't have any space left on your credit card or you've got some credit trouble? Now you can't park downtown. What does that mean to you? Well, we're not talking about people who are trying to get down to George Street Fest and can't park downtown. Like the meters are happening during the day, Monday and Friday. These are for individuals who are working at businesses downtown and now can't drive to get there because they can't. It's not that they can't afford the parking. Maybe they've got the money. They don't have the means. They don't have the means to do it. The cell phone's not working. The credit card's not working. And so they can't just put a quarter or a loonie in the meter anymore the way they used to. Now, when when our city councilors made that decision, was it to harm people living in poverty? No, it wasn't to harm people living in poverty. In fact, if you ask them, it's because too many of the meters were getting beaten up and the coins inside were getting stolen. Again, this is a result of the same problem. Nobody's beating up parking meters and stealing quarters because they've got nothing better to do. They're doing it because they're trying to find a way to buy some food or to service an addiction or an uncontrolled mental illness, which are the same thing and is an overarching problem in this conversation that we haven't yet gotten to, but I'm sure we will in this segment. And so when we make these little decisions, right, electronic parking meters with your phone, maybe it's more convenient for me, right? Maybe I can, maybe it's no big deal because I can pay in a portion of an hour and blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's better for me if I don't have any spare change in my pocket. It is not better for people living in poverty full stop. Now, does that mean that we have to make every decision based on our most vulnerable? I suppose we don't have to, but surely we can ask ourselves these questions throughout the process. And surely we can do a slightly better job of thinking about what the barriers to breaking the cycle of poverty are. Surely employment's one of those barriers. Surely transportation is another one. And so when we think of another municipal policy that that really drives me nuts, it is around Metrobus and GoBus. Metrobus is our public transit system here in St. John's and surrounding areas. GoBus is the version of that system that caters to people with disabilities. We know that people with physical disabilities are at a higher rate of poverty than those without disabilities. So the likelihood of you being poor if you're disabled is much higher than the likelihood of you being poor if you're not disabled. The price of Gold Bus has gone up consistently over the last seven years. The price of Gold Bus has not gotten down. Is the service good? No. Ask anybody who's disabled about Gold Bus and and tuck in because you've got quite a conversation coming your way. Um, I have a weird perspective on this. You know, I was in a wheelchair a few years ago for a while as I recovered from this crazy nerve condition and had to use GoBus at times. The result was infuriating. Really? So now the quality of GoBus certainly hasn't gotten any better, but the cost has. So we're taking the most vulnerable people, people with disabilities in our community who we know disproportionately live in poverty, and now we're charging them more for a terrible service. Now, when... When our politicians made that decision around GoBus, were they saying, ha, let's really punish these disabled poor? Of course, they weren't saying that. They were saying, ha, we're spending a lot of money on GoBus. We've got to try to recoup some of those costs. I understand the decision-making process. I just fundamentally disagree with it. Those two issues municipally, right, parking meters and go bus, one of them seems really easy. Should you charge disabled poor people more to get on the bus? No, you shouldn't do that. The other one is one that most of us would never think about. How does, how, how does me paying for parking with my phone impact people living in poverty? 
poverty? You might think that it doesn't, but the truth is it becomes a real impediment to employment and transportation for people. And maybe even for people who are just on the line as well, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, I mean, the, that, the living just above the poverty line is such a precarious place to be. It's worth noting, right? As government makes decisions, as they did a few years ago in a budget that increased fees and taxes on things, that fundamentally increases the, prob- the, the poverty line, right? So everything that you have to, those basic needs, everything you've got to spend money on in a year, add those up, that's the poverty line. And so when government pays you, makes you pay a little bit more for insurance by putting tax on it, makes you pay a little bit more for your driver's license, all of those things, all of those fees increase the poverty line. So does things like having to pay for parking downtown in a way that is punitive to you. And I mean, that's just a couple off the top of your head municipally, but I would imagine, are there are there examples of this bad policy provincially and then even federally? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've got a 40-minute show. We could go for a lot <laughs> longer than that. Provincially, let's talk about a few things that drive me really, really crazy. That The one I just mentioned around budget increases, that was from a few years ago in an, in an older liberal government budget. They've, they've changed some of that structure, right? And so um, the taxation on some insurances have gone down temporarily, some of those things. Those are really good policy decisions, really good policy decisions. And it matters for those people who are just above or just below the poverty line, people who can afford a car but are struggling to make their insurance payments. Those individuals, that stuff really matters for. But the biggest failure provincially is around income support rates. We visited a little bit on the last segment on this. When you take people who are living in poverty and you tell them this is the amount of money we expect you to live on and it's so far below the poverty line, they have no chance of breaking that cycle of poverty. So from a provincial policy point of view, that is the single biggest thing that the government of Newfoundland and Labrador can do. If you're not going to make things more affordable, right, and they haven't made things universally more affordable, in fact, as we've said, because of inflation, and this isn't the, this isn't provincial government's fault, right? right. Inflation's not the fault of, of Andrew Fury and his government, but not allowing people to keep up with that inflation through income support rates, that is their fault. That is their problem to solve, and as we've said, they're going to pay for it one way or the other. And so that's a provincial issue, but there are tons of others. On the provincial side... It's, it's around accessibility, and I want to talk about a big-picture provincial mm-hmm. government one for a second. Our last election, our last provincial election, was a messy one. We remember the stories. We were in the middle of a pandemic. Things weren't ideal. One of the proposed ways to get people to the polls was to drive. You could drive through to cast your vote. So if you're concerned about COVID exposure, you're supposed to be isolating. You could drive up to cast your ballot if you've got a car and you can pay for insurance, right? Um, And so the way we think about solving these problems, now again, recognizing that nobody predicted a pandemic, governments have to have elections, that's how they get their jobs back. At some point there was gonna be a pandemic provincial election here. How we solve those problems are very, very important to people living in poverty. And so that's just one example of how government solutions need to be geared toward everybody, not just those of us who take for granted the ability to drive to right. drive through to, to cash your ballot. So then it's almost like just a slight adjustment of the lens. That's really... It's all it takes. All it takes is a little adjustment of how we think about the solution set, right? We can even argue about what the problems are. We can argue about whether the poverty line is high or whether it's low. We can argue about how many people live in poverty. We can argue about any of that stuff and I'm happy to have those fights with politicians or anybody who wants to have those conversations. It's useful. What we can't argue about is that some of these solutions for public problems hurt people living in poverty 
more than they help the rest of us. And that's the lens that we need to demand our governments think differently. It's kind of like accessible buildings, like universal design. When we think about making our buildings accessible to people with disabilities, it doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody is harmed by having a different type of doorknob. Only people are helped. It's the same thing with every piece of government policy. They have the opportunity to help all citizens or help just a few. And all it takes is a slight shift in how they think about that decision-making criteria to help everybody instead. Yeah, a lot of the cities in Europe are built to this universal design, and you don't even notice. Absolutely. And in this conversation, that's just a metaphor for how decisions are made. But it is because, again, right, so many people with disabilities are living in poverty. It is an actual poverty issue, but it's also a metaphor for decision-making, how building things with universal design doesn't take away from anybody. It only includes others. Dan Meads is my guest here today on On Target. He's provincial coordinator with the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. When we come back, I think we've got enough time to talk a little bit about housing and maybe even some back to school discussion. Sounds great. Stay with us. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back to On Target. Jerry Lynn Mackey for Linda Swain today. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest is Dan Meads. He's provincial coordinator with the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. And Dan, you know, you're very learned and you've been a longtime advocate for uh, poverty concerns uh, right across the country, but especially here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, What's your assessment of the housing situation? We hear a lot at VOCM that it is a crisis right now. It is a crisis. There's no other word to use to describe it. Um, It's a crisis for a ton of people, people who had been saving to try to get into the housing market certainly are experiencing that. Um, But more importantly, for those who are just finding it difficult to find rental accommodations, it is a real crisis here all over Newfoundland and Labrador. So we often think of the rental market as being really difficult in the St. John's area. I want to flag for people that it's all over the island and Labrador is experiencing the same degree of concern. For people living in poverty, those on the waiting list for the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, some people are on that waiting list now for longer than a year. Um, And so it depends on where you fall. They have this sort of complicated but pretty rational coding system Mm -hmm. about where people fall on the waiting list. Depending on, I guess, how many family members. Family members, income, whether or not you're a victim of of domestic violence, there are lots of decisions, lots of pieces of information that go into that decision. some people are on that list for over a year. Um, and that's a failing system. Let's be really clear about the public housing system in Newfoundland and Labrador. It is a failing system right now. It's not a result of the individuals trying to do the, the work as hard as they can at the housing corporation. It's about resource, housing supply, and bigger picture policy that causes these things to happen. Um, but, but the housing crisis is real here in St. John's and all over the province right now. Um, we're seeing rates of homelessness, as reported by End Homeless of St. John's, that are fluctuating a little bit. If you're wondering what the actual number is, last week in St. John's, they reported at 195 individuals here in the St. John's area that are currently experiencing homelessness. Um, That number's big. That's a big number for our population. And I can tell you that, and they'll tell you that it's undercounted. That number is underrepresented. Um, Anybody who lives in the downtown area and goes past the gathering place, they're doing some great work there as best they can. Um, But you see the number of people that are waiting outside in the morning for some breakfast or a cup of coffee. You know that the number is very, very large. Uh, So the housing crisis is real. 
And I hate to tell you, it is getting worse. We're at the beginning mm-hmm. of what's going to be a very, very difficult time in housing in Newfoundland and Labrador. And there are some things that we can do as a community to make that better and to make it different. Um, but those choices don't seem to be being made at this moment. And so we're looking at, I'm looking down the road at a five-year window of what's going to be a very, very difficult time for people living in poverty to find stable, affordable adequate safe housing here in the province. What are some of the solutions, Dan? Yeah, so the fr- I mean, the first one's pretty easy, right? So you've got the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation for people who don't know, that's the provincial arm of nonprofit housing, right? And so that's subsidized housing owned and operated by the province of Newfoundland Labrador and a crown corporation called the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. They have an eviction policy. So let's keep in mind what that means. They're, they're self-described as the renter of last resort in the province, right? So if you've got nowhere else to live, the housing corporation, or currently the housing corporation's waiting list, is where you need to be. They have an eviction policy. So what happens if the renter of last resort evicts you? Well, you're homeless. There's no way around it. You are homeless when you're evicted from the housing corporation. So there are lots of places across the country and in North America that don't have punitive eviction policies the way that the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation does. I will tell you they have gotten better over recent years. There's a pretty strict process that that needs to happen in order for someone to be evicted by the housing corporation, and it is still too much, still too many people. If one person was evicted this year, that is one person too many to be evicted from the housing corporation. Now, that's not to say that people don't need more supports if they're living in Newfoundland Labrador housing units. If there's a reason that you're going to be evicted from the housing corporation, it is a lack of supports that is causing that. We're talking about addiction supports, we're talking about mental illness supports, talking about domestic violence supports, all of these things are real and they matter. And if people are provided with the appropriate supports at the appropriate time, we can stop them from being homeless as opposed to having government-sponsored programs that cause homelessness, which is what an eviction policy does at the housing corporation. It is also worth noting that some of this stuff is done right. The city of St. John's, specifically, is punching above its weight on the housing file. They have more housing units and their processes are better than most across the country. Wow. And so it is worth noting, right? I get on, sometimes I'm, I'm on the show, right? We have these conversations mm-hmm. and it's all doom and gloom. City of St. John's does a relatively good job on the housing file. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. But they're trying really hard, and there's lots more work to be done. There is a cyclical economic problem in Labrador as it relates to housing. The boom-bust economy that happens specifically in Lab West causes a housing shortage and, and this weird market contraction that happens sometimes where you end up with housing costs go through the roof overnight. And then landlords... Workers coming, right. Workers coming, yep. right. And we're glad that they're coming. We're glad they've got jobs that are paying them a good wage. Like that's, that's great, and it's been the economic driver in Labrador for a very, very, very long time. It's not those individuals' fault. But then what we get is people on income support, people who are just above the poverty line working in the service industry, are suddenly evicted from their units because they can't afford the rent that literally doubled within a couple of months span because they know that there's going to be a market for those expensive units. It's the same unit. The unit's not worth 2000 bucks a month, but they're going to get 2000 bucks a month for it because somebody's going to pay it. Exactly. Yeah. And so we've got to find a better way to think about housing stock specifically specifically in Labrador, although all over the province, but specifically in Labrador, to make sure that the housing stock is stable and healthy and affordable for people just at or below the poverty line. Again, this comes back to wages in some way. If we're willing to pay people $13.20 an hour to go to work all day, we got to make sure there's the ability for them to get somewhere to go back and lay their head and rest and come on back and serve us our coffee in the next morning, because that's really what we're talking about here, right? We're talking a lot about service industry individuals who are working all day and then into the night and then can't afford a place to live at the end of the day. That working poor and working homeless population is increasing in Newfoundland and Labrador month over month.
And I think it's, I guess, not just this province. We're seeing it right across the country. It is. We're seeing it right across the country. And this is an area in which Newfoundland and Labrador has a leg up on almost everywhere else. So Newfoundland and Labrador and Prince Edward Island are two interesting case studies when we think about how to solve these problems. Homelessness is a huge issue all across the country. We're talking about 195 people here in the St. John's area. That's not one floor of the drop-in center in Calgary. Right. And so how do you solve the homeless problem in Calgary? Gosh, that's a huge conversation. It's possible. It's doable. You know, they've been trying to do that work for a long time. And I I still believe we can end homelessness across the country. But it's cheaper and it's easier to do it here because the numbers are manageable. The number that the solutions are attainable. Can we find an extra 200 units in the city to help people? Of course, we could do it if we chose to. It's about working with landlords. It's about providing more and more suitable housing stock, right? One of the things that's happening here in Newfoundland and Labrador is a lot of the subsidized units are geared towards families. Right, too big. Yeah, because in the 70s when they were built, that was what the homeless population profile was. Now we need a ton more single units. So we've got to find some money to change the structure of the housing stock and to add more housing stock for people and recognize that the problem we solve today isn't going to be the problem we need to solve five years from now. Let's solve that problem then when we get there. But right now we're trying to solve today's problem with infrastructure from the 70s and we're never going to get it done. Dan, when you look at it that way, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a daunting task, but it's something that once you start, sort of, you'll start to see some change and hopefully keep it going. But this time of year, too, I mean, when it comes to, you know, everyone's, everyone with families and young people in schools, it's, it's a really tough time for some families who are trying to get school supplies. It's a really tough time. We all get the supply list for our kids, right? That supply list for lots of us is an opportunity to have some fun. You take your kids shopping for back to school stuff, and it can actually be a bit of a fun experience. The stress it adds to people who can't afford that experience is unbelievable. So we end up seeing families going without food for mom and dad because they're trying to make sure that a kid, that their kids got a nice enough book bag to go to school. Parents are making these tough choices. They don't want their children to be ostracized at school for some of the visual signs of poverty that sometimes happen, right? Um, and so it's a really, really, really tough time. And what I would say to people in our communities, reach out to your school. Let them know if you got a few extra bucks around, hey, I'm able to supply an extra set of of school supplies for another kid. I don't want to know who it is. Tell me their age, whether it's a boy or a girl. I'll make sure the backpack will feel appropriate to the age and gender. Um, Not the backpacks need to be gendered, but here we are. Um, And provide that to your school. That's one area. If people are looking, I get questions all the time, what can I do? If people are looking for a really tangible thing to do, just a quick email to your school administration and recognize you may not get a reply until the week before school, right? Principals get to take the time off too, and that's okay. Um, But when you get that response back, be ready to hop into action and bring in that, that bag full of school supplies. It can make a real difference for a family right now. And even if people don't hear back from the school, we also have blocked the bus going here at VOCM. That's right. Until, yeah, it's great. Until it's a the killer 19th. program. Yeah. It's a killer program. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we've got a strange opportunity in our world right now as we think about all of the changes that are happening around us. As we come out of the pandemic, lots of us in this community had high hopes for a just transition out of the pandemic you know, spoilers didn't happen. Here we are. It's gotten worse. There's another transition happening in our lives and in our communities that we need to keep in mind. And that's what we think of as a green transition. That green transition is also leaving a ton of our neighbors behind. And I want people to think about that. Our governments are starting to put in increased taxes on carbon, et cetera, et cetera. I'm all for those things. We really need to change the way we think about climate change in this province specifically. But 
that can't come at the cost of people living in poverty. It is impossible for us to look at people living in poverty and expect them to buy electric cars when the cost to do so is so much higher than traditional used cars that are going to be burning gasoline. Right. They would literally never, ever use a subsidy on an electric car. Right. Exactly. Right. It all comes off at the tax structure at the end of the year, and, and it doesn't change the income equation when you go to make those purchases. That's one example, but it's only one. There are tons of ways that um, living in the previous carbon-based economy are going to get more expensive. That's the market-based solution for trying to move people away from that carbon-intensive lifestyle. But it is going to disproportionately impact people living in poverty as they can't make the, the those longer-term decisions, and even if they're cheaper in the long term, right? I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that an electric car is cheaper over time, but it doesn't help people who are making those decisions today. The electric car is just one example, yeah. right? There are tons of little day-to-day examples as well. Um, that And we have an opportunity we can make these big transitions just for people living in poverty. It will help all of us if we do. Or we can continue to make decisions the way we always have, which is going to leave more and more people in our communities behind. Dan Meads, Provincial Coordinator with the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador and longtime poverty advocate. That's going to do it for us here on your VOCM. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.